Do you know what nemesis means? Hello and welcome to Direct, the podcast that takes a direct trajectory through a director's filmography. I'm Eric. I'm Levi. The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou is the movie we watched this week. Levi, tell us about The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. When Steve Zissou's partner is killed by the mysterious jaguar shark, Steve Zissou and his crew set off on the Belafonte for an expedition to hunt down the creature. With his estranged wife, a beautiful journalist, and a pilot who could possibly be Zissou's son, <laughs> they set off on an expedition with exotic sea creatures, pirates, Portuguese covers of David Bowie, and self-discovery. Eric, pretty good movie. Pretty Where'd good you land movie. On it? Pretty good movie. I This was another one for me. Uh, you know, last week or last episode, we talked about the Royal Tenenbaums and mm-hmm. how that was almost surprising on the rewatch, how good that was. Yeah. Same exact thing happened with this movie. I was surprised at how much I enjoyed this movie. I, I'm probably a decade removed from the last time I watched this film and mm-hmm. it just rung truer and, and more beautiful and more entertaining than it, than it ever has for me. And this is a movie that was at the top of my list in terms of uh, Wes Anderson films. So uh, it was a surprising, wonderful experience and I just really enjoyed it. Was the last time you saw this in the theater? No, I I did see this in the theater. It was when I was in college. There was yeah. I remember it was a uh, a screening. It was a free screening that they had. It was like a preview screening that they had at my college. So it was in like this giant auditorium. Um, and I remember going just because like, hey, it's a Wes Anderson movie. It's free. Let's go. I went with one of my roommates and. Uh, I remember being blown away then, and then, you know, I'm sure I watched it a couple other times on DVD or possibly on TV when it was on TV, um, but uh, but it's been a while, so... Yeah, they must have been on a real tear with the college films at the time, because I had the yeah. exact same experience. They came to UW, uh, MVP at Life, Jordy and I made sure to go see it. This was, I think, maybe the first Wes Anderson film I saw, and I huh. remembered that the line was out the door. At this point, his popularity, especially amongst uh, hipster college kids, was just unrivaled. There were movies that they would show that nobody had ever heard of and people wouldn't go to. This one, we ended up, yeah. for how early we would show up for those free movies, um, it was around the building. So it was a, and it was a heck of a film, and I remember being, I really liked it at the time. I loved the soundtrack. I bought the soundtrack, and it's one mm-hmm. of the few that I've ever purchased the soundtrack for. Um, and I was really glad on the rewatch that it it held together. It was a little bit slower than I remembered, hmm. um, but you know, it was kind of it was it was nice. It was like a like a just having a good uh, a brandy. You know, you just yeah. take your time <laughs> with it. You don't need it to be. All, uh, it doesn't have to. The entire movie doesn't have to be a pirate scene. So right, but at the same time, because you know the pirate scene really stands out in this movie because it is very different from the rest of the film. I mean, it raises mm-hmm. the stakes so high once the pirates show up because people are actually dying. I mean, Steve Zissou just straight up shoots a dude in the neck. <laughs> uh, it's weird. It, it like comes out of nowhere. Uh, but it does fit into the movie because when I think about this movie and I wrote it down in my notebook, uh, this is an adventure film. This is mm-hmm. an adventure movie. 
And it's done with all of the Wes Anderson trademark pieces. Some of the Wes Anderson trademark actors, obviously the style, obviously the dialogue. It's done with all of that, but it's still an adventure film at heart. And I thought it was so touching because there is that moment at the end of the movie um, where Steve Zissou, I think he's talking to the little kid outside on the steps um, mm-hmm. as they're as they're screening this latest installment of the Steve Zissou documentary series. Uh, and he looks at him and he just says, it's an adventure. And that's really what this movie is. It's an adventure movie. Like, uh, I'm going to go out on a limb here, but I feel like this is what Star Trek should be. Oh. Now, well, obviously, is- not not with all of the Wes Anderson style, but if you strip it down, <laughs> like, this, I feel like, is what, what Star Trek should be. Like, this is going where no man has gone before. This is exploring new worlds you know this this is this is an adventure film at its core and it has a lot of heart and has a lot of style and i just really loved it yeah it it plays a little bit it has a a touch of uh venture brothers in Mm -hmm. the sense that it takes what made those classic adventures where people were going out and they were discovering new things Mm -hmm. but there was a layer kind of, it was it was kind of not realistic in the sense that it didn't like when Steve Zissou's standing on the beach and talking about ah these are the the moon jellies right and they they light up because the reflection of the moon and then the reporter i can't remember uh Kate Blanchett's name um mm-hmm. she says oh it's a it's a chemical reaction yeah and so Zisu's totally full of shit, but his <laughs> description, his reality in which he is doing this exploring is the more interesting one. It's the more fun one. Right. And that's what a lot of those classic adventures were based around. If you thought about the fact that um, Adventure Brother knocks on this from uh, Johnny Quest, that was a child that was in a lot of really harrowing situations, <laughs> yeah. and it kind of just glosses over it. Yeah. And so when you look back when they're watching the the old tapes with uh with Owen Wilson and they're saying, Oh, that's how it used to be where they got stuck in the ice and they're leaping into the ice <laughs> and then they hear the call of the pack of muskrats or whatever it was. Yeah. Uh, there was a sort of this mysteriousness and the that adventure was around every corner was such a believable uh, thing to market. Yeah. Um, and now we get this sort of what is what happens when reality sets in, you know, when there are less when it feels like everything has been discovered and and mm. what's happened when you're left with kind of reality. Right, it's, it's that, but at the same time, like, you know, a big question mark of Steve Zissou at the beginning of this movie is people know that he's full of shit, but mm-hmm. at the same time, you go on the quest with him and you understand that he that these adventures are real, and there's something that's kind of wonderful and whimsical about that, in that he does, you know, confront pirates, and people, their stakes are high, the people die on his expeditions, and you know the jaguar shark is a real thing um mm-hmm. you know it, it, he gets validated in the movie as well yeah 
So it's not just you know reality setting in on to- on a guy who is full of shit. It's it's uh, it's the the core of Steve, Z- Steve Zissou, which is his love for adventure. Uh, you know, it breeds somebody who may tell a fish story every once in a while, but it is rooted in some type of in some type of realism. And I, I cool. really loved that they did the stop motion, yeah, creatures, and that the underwater scenes were surreal. Uh, on top of Wes Anderson's taste and his artistic sensibilities, it helped to. It helps you to join Zisu's world because uh-huh. these are creatures you don't recognize and they don't even <laughs> really exist in a reality that we know. Right. But if you're able to detach yourself, if you suspend your disbelief and join Zisu underwater, uh, or, you know, the little l- lizard crawling across his hand that he just <laughs> flicks aside, um, in a really great moment, yeah. uh, it, it helps to, to join his world, to join this this deep sea adventure. Yeah, stop motion is interesting. I like how you know that you could see the seeds of Fantastic Mr. Fox in this movie. Yeah. It's the first time that he's used stop motion. Uh, and you're totally right. Like I like how they have weird names for all of these fish. Like they're not actually the names; they're not real sea animals. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it allows them to take on this kind of whimsy. Because at the at its core, this movie is a boys' fantasy. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, we saw trappings of Steve Zissou in earlier films. Uh, you know, the book that gets checked out in Rushmore is the Jacques Cousteau book. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there's there's the boat in uh, in Royal Tenenbaums that Luke Wilson's character has been on this boat expedition for years. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you could tell that you know Wes Anderson has this kind of infatuation with the sea and with Jacques Cousteau and with that kind of rip roaring sixties adventure and this is the manifestation of that but it's some kind of boys fantasy right because not only is it Jacques Cousteau but he's on a boat he's got his own submarine he's got his own helicopter he has a private island with an orca in a tank he's got (laughs) he's going to deep sea labs uh and Mm -hmm. you know he's he's tracking this you know giant shark there's there's something about it he's got all of the toys that you would have in a playset uh, of of like the Steve Zissou playset, and you know they even build like miniature models, and they have the full scale model, the Belafonte, and it is very much some kind of boy's fantasy of what an adventure would be, and it's almost like you could see Wes Anderson playing with his action figures. Mm-hmm. It just so happens his action figures are, you know, Bill Murray and Jeff Goldblum and. <laughs> <laughs> Owen Wilson, and uh, yeah. and it's great. It's just really fun because you could tell that it comes from a place of whimsy. It comes from a place of imagination, and it comes from a place of this infatuation with adventure that breeds out of a heroic figure like Jacques Cousteau. You know, it, well, and right down to you talk boys' fantasy is such mm-hmm. a good title for it because the the Belafonte especially is. Like you said, it's a toy. Inside it has, yeah. He, especially, I love the introduction of the ship. I, if I could just put a scene on my wall 
uh-huh. it would be him walking through the ship just describing the different rooms uh you know talk about the sweetest massage and yeah. the the sauna and the kitchen which is the most up to date so not the not the research equipment but the right. <laughs> the kitchen has the most state of the art equipment um and you're right he is in some ways it's similar to a lot of the themes we had with Edgar Wright where this is a boy who has grown up but he never lost any of his boyish nature for good and for bad and yeah in the bad you know his he has a lack of responsibility he has difficulty with uh, charting a course um in life he's kind of acting emotionally and instinctually to everything but on the plus side he does find the beauty in a lot of things and he does bring together this ragtag group of people uh who are also looking for something typically you know he he allows them to have this outlet that does not have uh it doesn't have a control it's just always it's always open you know and and I think the pe- I think you could do a deep study on all of the people that uh, Zisu has abo- in his crew. Yeah, and um, it's it's you know it's a it's a he calls it himself calls it a, a beginning of misfits, mm-hmm. and that's what I really like about it. that's why I like the idea of this is like a Star Trek movie because, uh, it 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 it, it it's one of the great ensemble movies. Uh, I love the way that they handle the ensemble cast. And how they're able to uh, lend personality to these characters, even minor characters, uh, in in the crew gets, you know, an awesome little treatment. I mean, one of my favorite guys in the whole crew is the Bond Stooge, because he's like, <laughs> yeah, you know, he's there to make sure that they spend the money correctly. But pretty quickly, he gets, you know. Uh, Shanghai into the crew <laughs> and brainwashed, and I, I love the moment at the end of the movie where uh, Jeff Goldblum goes, "Hey, is this my latte machine?" And he's like, "How'd you get my latte machine?" And he's like, "We fucking stole it, man." <laughs> yeah, he's he's at that point channeling his Zisu crew, yeah, attitude, and he does it. What's cute is that it happens almost right away because they're in the elevator yeah. and Bill Murray's asked him not to bust his balls and the the guy that played the stooge was able to so perfectly know that mm-hmm. hey I'm a I'm a person too yeah and you get that all he needs is to be liked and accepted and that is Zisu's specialty is is accepting people uh, right he really doesn't have a problem with bringing and he deals with people in a lot of different ways. But even if you look at how like William Defoe plays Klaus and just like this need to be, he's a perfect fit for Zisu because Zisu accepts so openly and Klaus just wants to be accepted. He just wants to be a Zisu. Yeah. Um, and I can't believe the emote while playing a total ding dong (laughs) Defoe just, nails it like when he when he slaps owen wilson and you know and then owen wilson threatens him and then later owen wilson slaps him and how broken up klaus is about being even now he he doesn't want he didn't feel even in the first place when he slapped owen wilson um just 
a phenomenal cast all around. Yeah, Even I want to talk Goldblum about was perfectly placed. Yeah, I, I want to talk about each of the individual characters because I think that they're going to warrant their own individual segments. But mm-hmm. I, I want to go back to just talking about them as an ensemble, uh, and also, you know, just start with Bill Murray because Bill Murray's character in this is I feel like a definitive character for him in his career. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's early Bill Murray, which I'm sure that a lot of people, you know, around Christmas, a lot of people are watching Scrooged. Uh, <laughs> I'm in the camp that I kind of can't stand Scrooged, but <laughs> I understand there's a lot of people who love it and they hold it dear in their hearts. And I understand that. But he's just so, like, sporadic and erratic, and I know it's a throwback to a different era because they just don't make that kind of, we're going to turn on the camera and Bill Murray's going to be crazy for an hour and a half movies. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's it, it's just so interesting to see him in that and then see kind of a turn that I think starts around Rushmore. Um and then he's so stoic in both Rushmore and Royal Tenenbaums. But in this movie, you could tell it was the same type of Bill Murray. They're like, Bill, be yourself. Um, I'm sure that the the process here was a lot more collaborative than um, than I'm sure that Wes Anderson is with, with a lot of his actors. Because, I mean, Wes Anderson is a very meticulous, very diligent person. Mm-hmm. But Wes Ander- or Bill Murray delivers these lines with so with such... Uh, he's so comfortable in this body of Steve Zissou that you got to think a lot of this stuff was ad-libbed by him as well. <laughs> um, and it's kind of been what his career... Like, you think of Bill Murray, you think of Lost in Translation, you think of this film. Um, of course, you think of the Garfield animated movies. Nice. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> Good pull, but uh, but no, but I I really do feel like this is a definitive role for him, and I think that Wes Anderson has an archetype that's been developing over these four films, and I think we should try to figure out a name for this archetype because I I feel like it's there's a common thread throughout these movies. I think that uh, it starts with Dignan and Bottle Rocket, it -hmm. goes to Max and Rushmore, it goes to Royal and Royal Tenenbaums, and then it goes to um, to see Steve uh, in this film, and it's that it's the archetype of this confident buffoon, where he's charismatic enough to have a following, but he's he's just on the verge of his plan coming to fruition. Like he he At has all times. yeah, and he has these grandiose visions of what could be, but he can't really see past tomorrow in terms of planning for those things. Yeah. I I do think there's a common thread amongst those characters. Yeah. It's somewhere it's, it's not, I don't want to go with the alpha male because the, the talent of and ability of these characters falls shy of that, but Mm -hmm. it is the, the delusion that they are sort of right. an alpha male that they lead and they have enough reinforcement from the, the people who follow them that they are able to, to, uh, to convince themselves of such. And right. they act in that way. And it's enough to, you know, they say, 
you know, just um, fake it till you make it. And these characters are truly <laughs> succeeding at that in a lot of ways. Right. Um, I mean, Royal's a little bit different because Royal is a failure in many ways. Mm-hmm. He's um, flat broke at the end of his life. He's a, yeah. a bellman. His family is disassociated with him. But he seems like he was when he was younger. Yeah. The well, way that he, he kind of paraded his children around. and Yeah. And he doesn't ever lose that confidence either. Mm-hmm. Um, he's got this bombastic audacity where he tells his family that he has stomach cancer to reunite them, you know. <laughs> Uh, it's, it's whatever the beans need to be to get to the end. I mean, Max and Rushmore very much the same way. He's got this following people love his plays. He sits down with the headmaster of his Academy, like they're old friends. Uh, even though the headmaster has some kind of vitriol for him because he can't really fathom this bombastic audacity that this, you know, 17 year old kid has or whatever. Yeah. He's 15. Um, but he has that following too, and then same thing with Dignan. Like Dignan is just an idiot, but he's got this following, and people follow him. And there's something about that, about this character that is just a blabbering idiot, and yet has gar- and yet garners some kind of following just because he has this confidence to him. Um, yeah, this, and this is a recurring character in Wes Anderson's movies. It's a recurring protagonist in Wes Anderson's movies. And so I, I'm definitely keeping an eye out for that moving forward. Well, it's a the it's a credit to Anderson's ability that he is able to put these characters forward that are lacking. That as a a viewing audience, it's almost a dramatic irony seeing them try to succeed and fail. But uh, he's really good at getting you to to root for them as much yeah. as and we started with Dignan and I struggled with Dignan but Max and Royal and Zisu I have not had the same issue with by the end of those films I'm I'm rooting for them I want yeah. Zisu to be successful and I had honestly forgotten that uh, Owen Wilson dies in this movie and when he <laughs> dies in the end I was and to see Zisu trying to deal with that I was yeah truly emotionally involved in the film when he's sitting on the steps um actually it wasn't when he was sitting on the steps it was when he was in the sub and he sees the jaguar shark and he says i wonder if he remembers me yeah that's a really powerful sentiment that's what we all want is to be remembered well yeah that's a beautiful line too because and it's emotional climax of the movie but um it's a beautiful line because when I saw that, I don't really necessarily think that the jaguar shark... He's saying that about the jaguar shark. I think that he's really saying about that about his old colleague who was eaten by the jaguar shark. It's almost like the... What was the name of his colleague? I don't remember. Um, uh, I've got on the tip of my tongue, Sebastian... Uh, yes. No, was it Sebastian? No, it wasn't Sebastian. Shoot. <laughs> Well, um, Esteban. Esteban, yeah. Well, Spanish Sebastian. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, so I feel like it's almost like Esteban becomes the shark, and then that was uh, that was Steve's way of coping with it. I mean, this is a very common theme in Wes Anderson movies. I mean, these movies are almost a rehash. <laughs> uh, <laughs> they really are, man. It's the same themes over and over and over again in these Wes Anderson movies. 
is you know coping with death coping with the death of a loved one um mm. you know uh if, trying to succeed in the face of adversity but really this uh suicide is a big theme in these movies um you know it, we get the we get the suicide the suicide scene in Royal Tenenbaums Bombs with Luke Wilson we get uh um in this movie, who who somebody killed themselves in this movie using pills um, in a bathtub? Was that? I think that was Owen Wilson's mom. Oh yes, yeah. He talks to his mom. Yeah, his mom committed suicide. And then how did, do you remember how Max's mother died in Rushmore? Did they say? I felt like she might have committed suicide too, but I'm not certain. Yeah, I don't know. So I couldn't say with confidence, but there's. The, there's uh, this theme of trying to cope with the death of a loved one that is so strong in these movies. It was really strong in Rushmore. Um, you remember Ben Stiller's character in the Royal Tenenbaums. He's completely preoccupied with the death of his wife yeah. and keeping his family safe uh, in the face of that. Uh, and and then in this one, the whole plot is moved forward with you know Steve trying to get revenge on this shark that took his best friend from him. And then his son figure also gets killed uh, on that expedition. Mm-hmm. So it's, yeah, it's, it, it's really interesting. It goes back to, this is how I passed the AP English exam. <laughs> Everything is sex or death. And most likely it is sex and death. And at some point, I think it all comes to this notion of immortality because the idea of being remembered is the closest we ever get to immortality. And I think you're right. I think in a lot of ways, Zisu is projecting his partner onto the Jaguar shark. Um, because that's a little, that's some of the imagery Wes Anderson would absolutely use, I think. Yeah. Uh, but in addition, it's not just the shark. It's his, the, his fans, you know, the thing that he lived for, the thing that made his adventures so grand was, or the reason that he was motivated to was because of the the fans. And you see how much the people that he takes on to his crew, especially Kate Blanchett the, the, as the reporter and Owen Wilson, they were fans when they were younger. Yeah. And to have the, to have, to be remembered, um, is the best you can hope for. You want to be remembered, whether it's for your deeds or for many of us, it's simply how we, were with our family. Um, that's Tenenbaum. He wants to be remembered when he dies. That's all he can hope for. You know, that you can't take it with you and he doesn't have anything to take with him anyways. <laughs> um, you know, Blade Runner ends with a really powerful moment when the, the Android is about to pass. And he says, he talks about all, all of the knowledge, all of the things that I've seen will pass with me. And then he lists off these miraculous things that he has seen and are lost to time. And it's, you don't want your experience to be for nothing, whether you've shared it and you want to share it with others. That's how you kind of carry on in a, in a big way. And I think that's the beautiful part about Zisu putting Klaus's nephew on his shoulders at the end is it's kind of this, that's what we're trying. That's what we're trying to do is just lift the next generation. Um, yeah. On, preferably on, and you want to be remembered on, in that, 
moment. So, and mm-hmm. it's, there's a, that's a lot emotionally and there could, I could be totally reaching, but that to me is where this movie really resonates is, you know, to sit in that submarine and to have the jaguar shark bump it and just, they have no control in that moment. The jaguar shark has complete control of that. And to watch them just let go and be moved by it. Yeah. Um, that moment because i think that real peace is understanding that no person is remembered forever even um in and and you know the the bigger your legacy and the more you're remembered the more your story gets twisted i mean yeah think about like you know george washington Uh, the things that people think about george washington are probably all bullshit that was made up by somebody you know yeah or julius caesar or you know going back to however far back you want to go in history um you know it's all just what the what what people you know think of it i that's what i think i think that the real piece in there is understanding that there's beauty in just the your own experience and there's not really a need to pass it on there's there's beauty in just having lived it like, yeah there's nothing sad about dying and not having your entire life turned into a museum that people could study for the rest of time, right? It's mm-hmm. There's something that's really beautiful about just having had a human experience, and then that's it. I mean, that's the way that the universe actually happens, right? Yeah. There's billions of years of geologic time that pass, and no one's there to witness it. And that's something. there's something really beautiful and peaceful about that. It allows you to resigned to something larger than yourself well it so, stops the the obsession you know that's yeah. the obsession is the immortality and at the end zisu having especially having lost son not son right um and i think you could find in his words this is an adventure yeah. um that's why it is that moment where he lets it he doesn't have to film it yeah. it is an adventure that this is the adventure yeah, it's not. Yeah, it's not that what's what's been recorded. It's what you, what you actually experience, and and the idea that life is an adventure that he can lose, he can lose Owen Wilson's character and still, and not have to be vengeful about it. Even though, you know, there's no fucking way they should have gone up in that helicopter. That was a terrible idea. <laughs> I think it's a good point that. That he turned in some ways he turned Esteban's death into an adventure, and yeah. that was totally. that was his failing. And I think he's aware of that. Is that he tried to, and all it ended up with is another death. Yeah, and then the, the fact that they all just hop in the submarine after that is like, <laughs> come on, guys. The well, at that point, you've got to <laughs> yeah, we got to see this damn shark, <laughs> and we, of course we have to kick in the cigarros. Yes, um, Starl Four beautifully edited scene yeah i mean i like all the little details in this thing too like i love the submarine i love the insignias that are put on i mean obviously like the steve z's through the uniforms Mm -hmm. the uh the way that the insignia is changed by owen wilson's character the air kentucky uh logo and like the fake airline that they come up with and i love that he's buried at sea and they have Air Kentucky that people there like yeah. some kind of military ceremony. Uh-huh. Um, I I love all these little details and it's really beautiful because it's also I'll get back to what I talked about I believe last time we're talking about Royal Tenenbaums that 
Wes Anderson, while he's very meticulous, while he's very detail-oriented, he is good at distilling things down to their simplest form, mm-hmm. uh, which is something that I think makes his movie so elegant. And there's something about having some kind of visual language around Steve Zissou's uniforms and the fact that, you know, it's funny that everybody gets a Glock. And then they actually Except use the, them. the interns get one. Yeah, and then they actually use the Glocks. I love that. Don't point the gun at him. He's an unpaid intern. <laughs> um, you know, there's the, the University of North Alaska. Like, there's just all of these cute little creative moments where he builds this universe and it's and because of that because of that attention to detail and yet it's familiarity it's a world that you feel like you could step right into even though it's very whimsical and there's stop motion seahorses and all this shit uh so i i just there's so much to love about this movie there's so much to love about it and to me i feel like when we talk about that progression from Dignan to Max to Royal mm-hmm. to Steve, this is his most likable version of that character. Yeah. Uh, Steve Zissou is kind of the apex. So I'm really interested to see where we go from here because I know we're going to Darjeeling next. Uh, and we'll see how this character evolves over time because I don't think this archetype is going away. Uh, I think that this is a central central character to Wes Anderson's work. And his work so far has been so uh, connected to his other work. It's, it really does rhyme with all of his other movies. So I'm really interested to see where this archetype goes moving forward. Yeah. And this is the epitome of every frame of painting. I mean, you're talking about the uniforms, the insignias. Uh, Wes Anderson is in so in every scene like particular it feels like you can see him moving the you know three inches to the left one inch yeah. to the right like trying like he's just seems so a little bit ocd about it honestly and yeah. i'm really looking forward to watching uh uh fantastic mr fox yeah through this lens because that is a movie where he can literally place everything in the scene um right you know, I, I, and move it every time. Yeah. I, I do think it's interesting, though, because he shoots almost exclusively with wide-angle lenses in this movie and in his other movies. It's something I never mm-hmm. really noticed about him before because you think you wouldn't do that if you're Wes Anderson. You think that you would go with something that's a little bit flatter because you have these these kind of beautiful symmetric things these beautiful symmetric set pieces, and yet mm-hmm. you use a wide-angle lens, which gives everything kind of a little curve. And it's a bit odd. It's an odd choice, but if you look at this movie, I think almost every shot in this movie is shot with a wide-angle lens. And it's the same thing with Royal Tenenbaums. Uh, it's definitely a visual style that he's established. It, it gives it just a tiny little curve on the top and the bottom of the screen, uh, just a tiny little fisheye effect to the whole thing, which... which messes a bit with the symmetricality of the composition. So I think it's a really interesting choice on his part that he does that because they are so meticulous. Everything is so composed. And yet at the same time, you shoot it with wide angle lenses, which gives everything a little bit of a skewed look. So I would, I would love to see, and it's not possible, but Mm -hmm. to see his films with, without that effect. Yeah. To see how they feel. If that is, 
because you watch a Wes Anderson movie, you could show somebody, I feel like you could show somebody some very random clips from his movies and people would, somebody who's fairly well attuned to mm-hmm. movies would be able to pick out Wes Anderson frames. Yeah. And I wonder oh, yeah. how much it has at this point, do we associate with that sort of effect? <laughs> yeah. I mean, angle? I think post Tenenbaums, I feel like, um, I feel like Sucker Punch, and I, I think Rushmore has a lot of it, but Rushmore is still shot in many ways very conventionally. I mean, there are there are definitely Wes Anderson isms in the composition of Rushmore, but I feel like he doesn't really go full Anderson until Royal Tenenbaums. Once he hits that, it's basically full Anderson for the rest of the time. Um, yeah, I, I just think it's interesting. It's something I'm going to keep an eye out for because it's something I never noticed until this watch through is how much he uses wide angle lenses. Yeah, uh, which he might just do to get everything in the shot because <laughs> he puts a lot of stuff in the shot. Well, and it gives, especially for an adventure focused film, um, yeah. for this one, it gives a sense of that that vast sea and looking, yeah. and it it feels like it's of a time that. Despite the fact that this movie is set in roughly present day, yeah, uh, not that any technology alludes to that, um, it just gives it a sense of age, kind of right off the bat. Mm-hmm. To that era of was it Cinemascope uh, or the yeah the yes. old thirty five millimeter? Well, Cinemascope, uh, I believe you know that was the original Cinerama format. You had th- you actually had three projectors. And it would project mm-hmm. so big that it would wrap around you as the viewer. Oh. Yeah. That was the original Cinerama. It was three projectors. Um, and there were only a few movies that were shot on that. But that's that's what like um, that's what somebody like Quentin Tarantino was trying to recapture when he shot in 70mm on Hateful Eight. Mm-hmm. That type of thing. Um, yeah, and oh yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm I'm getting all director nerded out in my mind right now. No, I uh, I was to say I just I looked through the notes and I do you want to start do you want to talk about characters? I yeah, let's talk about characters. We've got I, only so much time and I feel yeah. like you could go frame by Pretty frame with these guys with his films. I'd love to go into first of all Kate Blanchett's character in this movie. Mm-hmm. Um first of all, I totally forgot that she put on such a weird accent for this movie. Yeah, it's odd. I mean, you you watch her in this because we watched her recently in Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Yep. And her actual voice, she's got like this low, she's got a rather low voice and she's got kind of this beautiful, smooth uh, tone to her voice, her natural voice. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this movie, she puts on like almost like a, like a Catherine Hepburn type of like, no, the, the, like it's, it's nasally <laughs> British... Uh, you know, not necessarily even British, like, but some kind of like upper class yachting accent that's kind of strange. It's a very interesting choice that she does in this movie. Yeah, maybe a little bit of the the northeastern Cape yeah. Cod. I think you, I think you put your finger on it. There were, yeah, I was not convinced that it was Kate Blanchett at first oh, glance. I, I had know. to go look it up. Uh. Because of because the accent was odd and she just carried herself very differently from I feel like other films, but yeah, she did a fantastic job of Amazing. of kind of emotionally bouncing around and challenging Zisu um, and interacting with Owen Wilson and Owen Wilson's McConaughey accent. Maybe it was just an accent off. 
They were just trying to yeah. throw each other. <laughs> they each put a, na- a name in a hat, and they had to mimic well, the Well, everybody accent. has a weird accent. I mean, except for Jeff Goldblum and Bill. But you have Kate Blanchett, Owen Wilson, and... Uh, William Defoe. And Willem Defoe all have weird accents. And, uh, you know, I, 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 Kate Blanchett's accent is, is great. She pulls it off nicely, but it's a weird choice, I think. Mm-hmm. I'm just kind of like, why? Willem Defoe kind of nails it hard. Yeah. But uh, but back to back to Kate Blanchett's character. Yep. I think that she. It's interesting because I feel like so far in Wes Anderson's movies, men have been portrayed as boys in his mm-hmm. movies, and women are are commonly portrayed as the voice of reason or the voice of wisdom in his films. Uh, you think about just all of the all of the films. Uh, you know, the teacher and Rushmore. Um, yep. You know. She's trying to fend off the affection of both Bill Murray and Max <laughs> in that movie. It's very strange for her while coping with the death of her husband. Um, I totally forgot about that he died as well. I mean, it's just such a common theme in Wes Anderson's <laughs> movies. Uh, you know, but she is kind of trying to steer the ship a little bit in this thing. Um, it's the same thing with Max's love interest in that film or I don't know if she's a love interest, but his his age appropriate love interest in the movie. Um, it's the same thing. Like it, they're just it, women in the films are much more even killed. You think about somebody like like um, Angelica Houston's role in Royal Tenenbaums, where she is the matriarch of the family, and she is very much the even keel there, and the voice of reason and the voice of wisdom. Even somebody like Margot Tenenbaum is the stoic. And she's the one who's had the experiences, and she comes out of that, and she is, you know, pretty depressed. But at the same time, she has this kind of this kind of wise air to her, and it's the same thing in this movie. You know, Angelica Houston's character in this one once again is kind of a voice of reason mm-hmm. and an even keel, and she is like the one. Like Steve's, like you got to come on this trip because who else is gonna, you know, talk sense into me? Yeah, <laughs> you know? he needs it's. <laughs> The voice, it's the mom character, regard, and yeah. Royal needed Angelica Houston almost to be his mom as much to be yeah. his, his wife. Uh, and now Angelica Houston's the same in this instance, yeah. the brains of the operation, but not just the brains. She also had the financial backing mm-hmm. and just the basic reason. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, Kate, and then Kate Blanchett, she's like literally becoming a mother in this. Mm-hmm. And she's kind of chasing a pipe dream. Um, because you know the father of her baby, I believe, had an affair. With, had an affair? Or no, he's married. She's having That's an right. affair. Yeah. Um, and so she's going to kind of have this fatherless child, and so she's co- trying to cope with that, and she's seeking out Steve Zissou, even though the magazine that she writes for doesn't really give a shit about Steve Zissou and doesn't want to do a cover mm-hmm. article about him. Uh, and so she's kind of chasing him because she was a childhood fan. But at the same time, she is there to. She's very much that same role as in Rushmore because she's trying to fend off uh, the affection of Steve, uh, and she's accepting the affection of Owen. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, but yeah, this kind of you're totally right. Like I feel like in Wes Anderson movies so far, men are boys and women are mothers, and that's kind of that's that's kind of the the archetypes that they employ. Yeah, it's. I would say probably one of the more unfortunate aspects of Wes Anderson that he can't get out to because I'm thinking 
all the way up to uh, Grand Budapest. And really just strong female characters, interesting female characters coming off David Fincher and Girl with a Dragon Tattoo. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, He really does not write female characters very well. and He He does write. I mean, his movies don't defer that much from one another thematically. Yeah. Dealing with death of a loved one, trying to overcome that, uh, you know, um, and having this kind of buffoon, this confident buffoon as the archetype, having men play boys, having women play matriarchs. I don't think that those themes are going to change very much over over the course of his films. That's those are Wes Anderson isms. Yeah, and that's talk what about makes it. it. It gets masked so much in the style because oh, this one's about the sea, and this one's about New York, and this one's about an academy, and this one's about India. Uh, but the 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 actual the actual Wes Anderson isms are those things, and they're pretty solid in all the movies. Yeah, it's what makes it easy to riff on it. That's why we yeah. have the X Men done by Wes Anderson. It well, no, see, I feel like that's 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 the that's just going with the aesthetic, like the X Men done by Wes Anderson, or you know the 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 horror movie that SNL did that was in the Wes Anderson themes. All these Wes Anderson parody ones, mm-hmm. they're focusing on the Wes Anderson aesthetic. I'm saying that the actual Wes Andersonisms, which are the things that are actually strongly prevalent in every story that he tells are these things of the men as boys, women as patriarchs protagonist is a confident buffoon and there's going to be dealing with the death of a loved one is going to be a major theme throughout the entire film. Like these are the, these are the undercurrents that when you watch these movies, the back to back, it becomes really apparent. And it, and it, and to me, those are the things that shine even brighter than that aesthetic and the, you know, Futura font and everything mm-hmm. else that that is a Wes Anderson ism to somebody who just thinks about those surface elements of Wes Anderson. See, that's his back. This is his backup plan. It's kind of like Catch Twenty Two, where they keep crashing the plane so they can practice crashing for the yeah. real one. Uh-huh. He builds up this visual aesthetic, and then at right. some point, he's gonna veer. He's gonna do a movie that looks like any other movie, <laughs> but his undercurrent's still gonna be there. We're gonna know. It's still a Wes Anderson movie, just looking yeah. for those those thematic elements. Maybe. And he'll get another, he can get a boost to his career. They be, oh, he changed it up. It doesn't look like a Wes Anderson movie. But it's written like uh, one. I bet people would hate it. I bet people would be <laughs> You think people bad. are married to the visual aesthetic at this point? Yeah, totally. Absolutely. And, and also, it's a calling card, right? I mean... Wes Anderson is one of the few household name directors out there, and he's done that by carving out a niche for himself in the same way Tarantino does, uh, in the same way somebody like Edgar Wright does, um, in the same way somebody like Guillermo del Toro does at this point. David Fincher is fairly diverse, but he still has the same kind of look Mm -hmm. and definitely creepy aesthetic. But I feel like he's not – like I feel like Wes Anderson is up there – it's probably second most prevalent or prominent director behind Tarantino that we've covered on this podcast. Yeah. I in terms of household name. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he does that through the aesthetic. So I, I think it would be like if Tarantino made a romantic comedy and people would be like, what the fuck, man? <laughs> G- give me some guns. Give me some blood. Like that, <laughs> like that, th- those things that he, those things that, that have made Tarantino Tarantino, people would be pissed if, if Wes Anderson created like, I don't know a war movie Dunkirk by Wes Anderson. <laughs> um, yeah, it's uh, 
God, it's so good, man. Uh, th- there's so many good things. Uh, we're almost out of time. <laughs> like, I could talk about this movie for a long time. We, we barely scratched the surface. Like, Owen Wilson in this movie. So interesting. I mean, let's let's talk about Owen Wilson for a minute. Let's. because Ned Plimpton. Ned Plimpton. Kentucky Air. At the same time, Owen Wilson, co-writer of Wes Anderson's films, I believe up till this point. This one was co-written by Noah Baumbach. Mm-hmm. But still very prominently features owen wilson um and is owen wilson good in this i don't know (laughs) i like as far as i'm concerned this is the best owen wilson has done in terms of acting ever yeah i i kind of agree like i feel like he's effective even though his accent sucks and it slips half the time yeah and i mean dude you're from texas you should be able to do a kentucky accent but um but at the same time, like it's so hard for me to connect Owen Wilson in this movie to Owen Wilson in Wedding Crashers, mm-hmm. or you know, uh, Zoo or Zoolander, or you know, he's he's so separate. Like I feel like this is the Owen Wilson that Owen Wilson would like to play in his movies, <laughs> but he now uh-huh. ever since like Wedding Crashers, he's like got to play like these kind of buffoonish guys. Yeah, he's gonna um, have to pull a Bill Murray and just wait till the the sunset years of his career yeah and start taking just the the <laughs> earnest roles he is so earnest in this he plays yeah. this mm-hmm. kid without a father so well yep and it's it's so easy to overlook when angelica houston says that he's not his son at that point in the movie i didn't care right. i wanted them to be father and son forever um, well, and they are as far as Steve. Well, that's a hard thing because Steve knows that he shoots blanks. Does, no, Angelica Houston says that she wasn't convinced that even Steve knew. Huh. I believe that's in the line. She goes, "This okay. is something only I know." Even Steve, I thought she said, huh. um, doesn't know, which makes it e- just yeah. It it dies with with Owen Wilson. Nobody's gonna bring that up after the fact. Um, yeah. So and. You're right. the 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 accent's kind of dumb, but he goes. He does so well in this kind of Kentucky attitude. He wants mm-hmm. to please his father, who he believes is his father. Uh, he's watching him and Kate Blanchett have excellent chemistry. Um, watching him sit and listen to her read uh, was a real kind of sweet moment. Yeah. Um. I I feel like he's very affecting in this movie, I, and you forget that he's Owen Wilson too. <laughs> yeah, which is so hard for Owen Wilson to not be Owen Wilson, right? Yeah, well, nobody's. I think this is he's finally been challenged to not be Owen Wilson, and he can do it. He could be not Owen but, Wilson. But this is a root. That's the thing about Owen Wilson that makes this this kind of blows my mind about him is that this is his root. This his first movie was Bottle Rocket. He's been. On this journey with Wes Anderson, like it's so interesting to me that he's not so intrinsically tied to Wes Anderson. I mean, they are hand in hand. They mm-hmm. co-written movies together. They these two people are part and parcel to one another in terms of success. Like they are the enablers of each other's success uh, and, their, and each other's household name status today in America. And yet they're not intrinsically tied to one another, which I think is so interesting. Now I'm going to look and see what Owen Wilson did immediately after and immediately yeah. before this. Let's see here. It's just 2004. Um, 
Shanghai Nights came yep. between Royal Tenenbaums and Life Aquatic. Uh-huh. So great job. Yep. Um, Meet the Fockers was directly after. Mm-hmm. Then he had Wedding Crashers and he had Cars. Then we jumped yeah. back into Darjeeling Limited. Then he did Drillbit Taylor. Wow. Um, he's just wow. All over the, but then at some point, it's just, they did Midnight in Paris. I know he did I a Woody heard Allen movie. He was movie. good in that. He did a Woody Allen movie. Is it, this Owen Wilson? This rewatch has made me take a second look at Owen Wilson. That's all I'm saying. I it's, think it makes you look down his list of films he's acted in, mm-hmm. and you go, "What is happening?" Every like maybe you can under you can figure out when he's deep into drugs and when not. <laughs> I don't know. Or when he's deep in the debt. I don't know. It's just so interesting to me. It's really interesting to me to look at Owen Wilson. Like this movie yeah. really changed my kind of thoughts on him. And then, and then Willem Dafoe in this, so committed, mm-hmm. so interesting, so different from any other thing we've seen Willem Dafoe in. So comedic, like so joyful and wondrous. I love how he's just the snubbed guy because he was supposed to be the son figure to mm-hmm. Steve Zissou and now this guy's elbowed his way in and he's super jealous and just so different I mean I watched uh, John Wick this week for the first time have you seen John Wick? Oh, I love John Wick I mean him and John Wick it's completely like it's just so funny man like Willem Dafoe has such range as an actor and this movie I feel like at, kind of in the same way that, well, not quite in the same way. Like I really do think that Owen Wilson has more range after watching this movie. Willem Dafoe just kind of blows me away that he is. I guess I've never seen him as a character actor, but he is a character actor, isn't he? He, I, you know, I'm not positive. I, I know mm-hmm. exactly what char- qualifies as character actor in this. Well, I think that regard. like the most, like I would say that. Uh, obviously, like Philip Seymour Hoffman's a character actor, and probably the mo- probably the mm-hmm. best example of a character actor. Somebody gotcha. like William H Macy's a character actor, like basically somebody who enters a film and doesn't play themselves. Like Ben Affleck plays himself, George Clooney <laughs> plays himself, gotcha. Owen Wilson plays himself. You know, mm-hmm. these guys go into a movie and carve out a space for themselves in every film that they're in. I would say even somebody like John Goodman is a character actor where somebody like, uh, oh, come on, who's the big Lebowski? Uh, Jeff Bridges yeah. is not a character actor. <laughs> Jeff Bridges is Jeff Bridges. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so, yeah. I, I agree. William Defoe. whenever I see him in a movie, I get really nervous. And it's because I don't know where he's going to go. And he, yeah. he can be so unsettling in some of his movies. Uh, Boondock Saints, he's, he plays such a weirdo. <laughs> yeah. Um, Grand Budapest Hotel. I remember him playing an excellent villain. And then he's got movies like this where he lands somewhere in the middle. <laughs> where His motivation is so clear. Yeah. He sticks to it so well. Uh, and he just throws in that bit of humor that is purely in how he times it and executes it. Yeah. Um, the lines could be said in a way that is emotional if – if Owen Wilson were to flip around and and be upset with how he was being m- removed from the family in some regard, um, he could make this heartfelt. But William Defoe yeah. makes it funny in how he yeah. responds in this German stereotype that yeah. 
is akin to uh, Monty Python, how they depict Germans, which is yeah, not I mean, really a, a nice light. <laughs> well, and I don't even, I don't really think that he's doing basically a an accent of a German accent. Yeah, like it's not actually how German people speak, but uh, he's so committed to it and so funny, and yeah, I just, I just love his commitment in this movie. It just, it just really makes makes me happy and just as an ensemble like i like i said i love this as an ensemble movie this uh, this rewatch has really solidified this as like a a great blueprint for ensemble films because we are so in, ingrained in the, all of these characters and so um so wrapped up in what each of them are bringing i mean the thing that kind of like this movie when i say it's an adventure it reminds me of playing D D. It really does. <laughs> it could be. This could be yeah. a ship full of. Oh my god! You've got some throwaway interns that you just Dude, get killed what if most we, of the time. What if we you're, create the pen and paper Steve Zissou RPG? Oh my god! And you just—it's all about exploring. Oh my god! And sometimes they're pirates, and sometimes somebody yeah. dies. Yeah. But the majority of it is just exploring and adventure. Oh my goodness! This yeah. is the best laid back. And imagine the book. I mean, it would be beautiful. Quick, roll this thing back. Cut out the last yeah. five minutes. We've got I'm, a Kickstarter I'm sure on our hands. Already, there's probably a PDF floating around online of this. Oh. Wouldn't that be fun, though? Somebody's like, the get... bard, say Jorge, who is oh, the yeah. guy who does all the cover songs, yeah, but Sue also George. in the movie. Yeah, he's the bard. Yeah, there's, I mean, this is totally like a dean. And that's what I love about these. Like, I just watched Rogue One. Have you seen yeah. Rogue One? Fantastic movie. I thought it was Go I thought it was amazing. It blew me away. Um uh I'm right up there with Aaron's review, which is on the Bald Move Network, that it's it's right behind Empire Strikes Back for me right now. And yeah. I, and I'm I'm in the afterglow, that might change, but it was great because it was an ensemble movie, it reminded me of D and D. Like and it was more D and D than this movie was. Yeah. But something like that, something like Guardians of the Galaxy. Like mm-hmm. they invoke this kind of adventure, Dungeons and Dragons excitement, like that's really fun. And you know, we're in this world where even something like the Avengers doesn't capture this. Uh, but all of these big tentpole kind of comic book movies are all about these one single heroic figure. I am a sucker for an ensemble movie. I love it, man. Like Snatch. Uh, you know, the, uh, Ocean's Eleven, the first, you know, the the mm-hmm. first Ocean's Eleven, the Steven Soderbergh one. Yep. Just I love that kind of ensemble. You know, everybody's com- coming together and putting a plan together. There's something really wonderful about that, especially in an adventure setting. And that's why I get back to this. I'm gonna mm-hmm. bookend with this. I really feel like this is what Star Trek should be. And I, <laughs> I am a Star Trek apologist, by the way. I really like the new Star Trek movies, especially the J.J. Abrams one. Yep. I'm a big fan of In the Darkness, and I know that's sacrilegious to a lot of people. <laughs> but I think it's because I was never a fan of the TV show. Yeah, like I was never in the Star Trek before J.J. Abrams. So I thought that those movies were cool. But when people are talking about, hey, it should be more of an adventure story. It should be more about exploring. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you make a movie like that interesting? Use this blueprint. Yeah, because that's this, a good. <laughs> yeah, because this movie, it has all the adventure. It has the action. I mean, it has high stakes action. Steve Zissou fucking lights up a room <laughs> full of pirates in this and blows them up. Um, yeah, with the dynamite. <laughs> yeah, and I love how they steal all of. Uh, I mean, Jeff Wilblum's whole crew gets murdered. 
They get straight up murdered. Shot. Plague, and in yeah. one of the funnier, like, drop comedy moments where he, yeah. I fold, bang! <laughs> yeah. Well, and the funny thing about that, too, is he basically, the I, I love this because it's like a minor characterization on his part. He gets mm-hmm. shot in the heart, <laughs> and he's totally fine. He puts a bandage on it, and he's totally fine. Like, he is heartless. He's a heartless man. Like, that... Yeah. It's something. There's something so awesome about that. This is a fan theory that you can put up next to Ving Rhames in yeah. uh, Pulp Fiction. Yeah, he gets shot in the heart because he doesn't have a heart. He doesn't have a heart, and he just puts a bandage on. It. He's totally fine. <laughs> um. Yeah. Okay. So much. There's so much to talk about this movie. I thought this movie was wonderful, and I know last week I was like, "Oh yeah, Royal Tenenbaums. I loved it. It's got to be top of my list. This is definitely top of my list right now for Wes Anderson. Wow. I feel like these movies are getting better and better." Um, really, I don't know if this will top Tenenbaums for me. I think there was yeah. a earnestness and kind of a neat quality mm-hmm. to Tenenbaums, but this is, I mean, absolutely second place. I think, and yeah. I thought Rushmore was going to come in. I thought higher. Rushmore was going to be the first my top choice. It's totally not. Totally Let's not. See where we go. I'm looking Let's forward to all here. the films we've got yeah. left. And Darjeeling Limited is another one that I yeah. don't think I've seen since it was in theaters. So mm-hmm. I'm I'm pretty jazzed to. To refresh myself, yeah, on I it. think I've seen that one twice, but it has been a long time. It's been a long time, um, and yeah, we didn't even—I I mentioned it briefly, but Noah Baumbach co-wrote this one, and I think that he's a co-writer on some some other ones coming up here. So, uh, the other thing that I would encourage is uh, to also watch Hotel Chevalier, which is uh, a short that accompanies the Darjeeling Limited. It's a pre prequel short about um jason jason statham no not jason statham jason <laughs> schwartzman's character uh and i believe you can watch it online so oh, i would yes say, i think i have i'll have to go back yeah. and watch it but i'm i think i remember it so give i think that we should give that a watch as well but yeah next mm-hmm. week uh Dar- darjeeling limited i know we uh took a week off here but we will be back next week i promise and uh yeah next week's christmas yeah we'll figure it out we can record yeah advance or something anyways merry christmas to everybody happy holidays happy holidays and uh we'll see you next week for the darjeeling limited until then i'm eric i'm levi cut